Hi again. Last week I was pleased to share with you that we reached the 20,000 downloads milestone. This week I'm excited to announce that according to Listen Notes, one of the world's biggest podcast search engines, The Voices of War is one of the top 3% most popular shows out of more than 2.7 million podcasts globally. To say that I'm excited about this would be an understatement, and I want to thank each and every one of you for supporting the show. If you haven't yet given us a 5-star rating or review, please consider taking a few seconds to maybe do that now. Every review and rating helps bring the show to more listeners. You can also help by telling your friends and family about the show, or simply by sharing it with your followers on social media. Okay, back to another interesting interview, this time with two outstanding guests. My guests today are John Blacksland and Chindu Zhu. My audience might already be familiar with John Blacksland, who's previously been on the show. He is a professor of international security and intelligence studies and former head of the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. Prior to his academic pursuits, John enjoyed an extensive career as an intelligence officer in the Australian Army, including as the principal intelligence staff officer for the Australian contingent deployed to East Timor in 1999, as the Director of Joint Intelligence Operations at Headquarters Joint Operations Command, and as Australia's Defence Attaché to Thailand and Myanmar. John is an outspoken commentator and researcher on topics such as Australian military history and strategy, public policy, security, defence and international relations. Chin Du Zhu hosts Dialogue Weekend at China Global Television Network, a talk show that offers in-depth analyses of current affairs. He also works as a producer of the Today Show at China Radio International. As a political analyst who follows Chinese foreign policy closely, Chindu frequently contributes to international media outlets such as the New York Times, Press TV, NPR, Turkish TRT, ABC, RT, and others. Chindu majored in, majored in both English and international studies. His focus of research has been on China's rise and its interaction with the rest of the world. Chindu has spent years in the US as the chief correspondent for China Radio International and one year in Australia as a visiting scholar at the University of Melbourne. He is a senior fellow at the Pangol Institution and an adjunct professor at Renmin University of China. Chindu and John join me today to discuss the impact of the recently announced AUKUS security partnership, as well as broader issues to do with the ongoing rise of China. Gentlemen, thank you both for joining me on The Voices of War. Thank you, Matt. Great to be with you, Ms. John, maybe I can start with you. What is AUKUS and what has motivated its creation and, of course, the, uh, the storm that ensued? Yeah, thanks, Maz. Uh, firstly, uh, it's not a pact. It's a technical agreement about the sharing of technology, including nuclear propulsion for submarines. Um, and uh, I was in a chat just recently and people were talking about it at the, end, at the AUKUS pact. I'm thinking, hang on a minute, there's no security guarantee here. Mm. There's no reciprocal mutual uh, agreement to protect each other in, in, the, in extremists. Uh, it's a technical agreement. Now, what it does is, you know, imply that there's more to it, but it mm. is in, in the words, in the black and white words used, it's a technical agreement. And why, is it, why has it come about? Well... You know, there's a variety of factors there. One is which is that um, um, technology shifted. So the decision five years ago to get uh, conventionally propulsion uh, submarines uh, with diesel electric submarine propulsion um, has been overtaken by events. One is technology shifted. Uh, what's become patently clear is that 
Australian submarines to operate at long distances, which is what you need to even just get around Australia's shoreline, let alone go anywhere else, yeah. requires uh, the ability to sustain reasonably rapid movement uh, with stealth. Now, submarines, the key thing about submarines is they offer stealth, but stealth has become compromised by the fact that computers, AI, drones, satellites means it's a lot easier to detect a submarine now than it ever was. Mm. It's particularly a conventionally uh, powered one like the, the ones we were talking about getting from France. Mm. So the whole point of being stealthy, the whole point of spending 90 billion Australian dollars on submarines was to get something that had reached deterrence and stealth. If you don't have the stealth anymore, you don't have the deterrence. So it became uh, an issue of what do we do? We're in a bit of a conundrum. Um, and the decision was made to approach the Brits and the Americans about sharing nuclear propulsion technology. And with that, a range of technologies that would uh, enable Australia to be able to have greater range with its weapon systems to add a degree of confidence to its ability to deter, mindful in particular of the fact that China has exponentially grown its military capabilities and developed long-range precision strike capabilities to which Australia could offer nothing in to deter in response. Mm. So a combination of factors there. Mm. Uh, and uh, along the way, we managed to insult the French uh, by <laughs> walking away from the French nuclear, front French submarine deal, even though they themselves made nuclear propulsion submarines. Uh, and uh, but their version was one that was it's a low enriched uranium version. The American British one is a high enriched uranium version, mm. which ostensibly is a version that doesn't require massive Australian technological input because it's a bit like a black box. You can plug it in and run it for 30 to 35 years and with apart from exterior maintenance, not touch the insides. Mm. Uh, now, you know, that's all well and good in theory. The practice is that we now have cancelled the submarine program. We don't have another one. Uh, and so technologically, there's actually very little to show for it today in or the tomorrow. Near term. Yeah. In the near term. Yeah. In the near term, of course. And now, of course, that's uh, – and I like the fact that you that you use the word deterrent uh, because it's for even the very uninformed, uh, it's very clear what this deterrence is for uh, and, of course, the rise of China. Uh, Chindu, what are your thoughts uh, on AUKUS and its origins and why it's been brought into existence? Uh, well, for China, you know, if, of course, China is uh, not happy with uh, the new development. Uh, basically, it's like uh, a new military building uh, block uh, in this region. So, uh, and also I want to point out, China's unhappiness is mostly targeting at Washington not mm. really at Australia, because mm. China would say, you know, if you look at the spokesperson from Chinese foreign ministry, uh, they are talking about um, irresponsible behavior of Washington. Um, you know, speak of being irrespons uh, irresponsible, that means like uh, there's a potential uh, problem with uh, non-proliferation treaty, uh, mm. because uh, Australia is a member of, um, you know, NPT, but Washington, by exploring loophole in that NPT, uh, basically by sharing technology with uh, you know, nuclear technology with uh, Australia, because that could set a, a bad example for other countries. For example, you know South Korea, uh, Iran, Israel, and uh, and Japan even. Uh, you know how how do you have this uh, enough reason or enough 
uh, ratification justification to prevent them from acquiring, for example, nuclear powered submarines. They say, you know, Australia has it. Why can't I have that? Mm-hmm. And also, it, 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 that that is a concern. And of course, by building such a new uh, military alliance, it is, you know, uh, is breaking this security framework in this region. We know in this region, we have ASEAN at the center, basically. We have all kinds of uh, conferences like ASEAN plus one, ASEAN plus three, you know, foreign minister meeting, et cetera, uh, basically focusing on uh, ASEAN or led by ASEAN countries, the 10 ASEAN countries, you know, Australia, China, uh, Europe, uh, the United States, all part of this uh, larger group. And mm-hmm. you can say, you know, adding to that is, uh, you know, from this year early on, you know, the first uh, summit meeting by President Biden is uh, to have a video conference with uh, uh, leaders from other uh, quad countries, right, mm-hmm. including Australia, India, and Japan. And now you have a uh, AUKUS, basically, on one hand, you enhanced the mechanism of quad. We know that's also targeting China. And now you have AUKUS, again, targeting China. Uh, so, you know, Biden said at the UN General Assembly that, uh, you know, the U.S. is not seeking a Cold War uh, or, uh, you know, somehow uh, breaking the world into different blocks. But the Washington is exactly doing that. Uh, so, you know, people wonder, is Washington seeking a new Cold War? That is a concern because for China, China does not want to have a, a Cold War with the U.S. Or any, uh, or any other country because China is still in the mind of uh, pushing forward for, uh, f- uh, for example, this uh, free trade agreement. Uh, you know, that's why China applied to join CPTPP, mm. the Comprehensive and Progressive TPP, uh, and, and also RCEP is to start, uh, hopefully, uh, this year, at end of this year or early next year uh, to become effective. Uh, so uh, China thinks, you know, globalization, free trade, you know, investment should still be the major theme of the global development because that will benefit, of course, China and also mm-hmm. the, the entire region uh, because that's about the people's standard of living, uh, economic issues. We know that for every country that matters the most probably. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that that's, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the differences, I think, mm-hmm. you know, sitting from Beijing, people see it differently from say people in, uh, in, in Canberra or in Washington. Yeah, can absolutely. I can I respond? Yeah, Mays? of course, John. Uh, yeah, of course. Because it, it's really great to hear Chindu's points of view on this, but there's so many points at which I have to respond. Uh, mm-hmm. uh, now, firstly, you know, rhetorically, all of the things Chindu said are you know understandable and reasonably valid, um, and uh, but and yet the reality doesn't quite match the rhetoric um, because China has you know we talk about a Cold War, we talk about a, an arms race. Um, no other country in Asia has seen an exponential growth in its military capabilities other than China in the last 50 years. It is only China that has massively increased its spending uh, and its investment in technology. It's built this, you know, a fleet the size of the French Navy, you know, arguably between one and a couple of years. Uh, It's invested enormously in technologies that are deeply frightening and that have generated pushback that have caused this concern. So uh, is it targeting China? 
you know, in part, it is a response to China's very, you know, dramatic increase in its own defence capabilities that when you match it to the rhetoric of wolf warrior diplomacy and the exercise of sharp power, you know, the sanctions that the Koreans have suffered, the Canadians have suffered, the, the Swedes, the Norwegians, and now Australia have all been the, the, the butt of, um, mm. it's it's deeply worrying. Now, Chindu talked about a new uh, the United States seeking a new Cold War. I actually find that construct completely unhelpful. The Cold War was between two very separate political and economic powers. The Soviet Union uh, uh, and the, the Warsaw Pact, uh, you know, China was not part of that after 1971 anyway. Um, it was it, it was very much a closed off world, very little trade really between them, very little connection between them. They were isolated between, mm-hmm. but you know, literally the Iron Curtain, as they used to call it. Mm-hmm. Today, the world is much more interconnected. We, we, the, the, so the metaphor of the Cold War, I find helpful. What we're facing today is now what I'm calling the six seas in the one sea. The one global lake, which we all share, the global maritime commons, which if you flat flat out that on a map, realise that, you know, it is one lake that we all have to share, Mm -hmm. um, the level of which might be rising and causing global climate change concerns. Um, Nonetheless, what we're seeing is a continuum from cooperation to competition to uh, contestation, coercion and conflict. Now, that's happening now. It's happening on a range of issues. And there is there is a range of responses that countries across the region, Southeast Asia, the Quad countries and beyond in Europe and elsewhere are responding incrementally with some nuance on all of those issues. Hmm. So um, CP, it, it's very interesting to see China wanting to play in the CPTPP and they're bought in on the RCEP. Great. Um, Australia's got a free trade agreement with, with, with China and we'll, we'll see whether with these World Trade negotiation, Organization negotiations, China will honour its agreement to that because it's, it's, it's imposed all these sanctions on Australia, economic and trade sanctions, that are clearly out of peak. They're mm. clearly a, a response out of being annoyed at the, at the gall of Australia challenging China over you know the origins of the virus, the coronavirus, um, and and Australia's objections to Huawei, which you know Chinese legislation makes clear is designed has implications in terms of Australia's domestic security. So yes, it's great China wants to join CPTPP. I would say um, okay, let's just check out on the ground rules here first. Who's included? What are the terms of reference? And are you going to lift the sanctions that you're imposing on Australia that are purely arbitrary? Um, And also, uh, is Taiwan going to be admitted at the same time? Um, Much like we have with the Asia-Pacific Economic Corporation Mm. Forum, it's between economies. Um, And I think, you know, if we're going to do that, I think the United States should be strongly encouraged to participate as well. Um, If we want a level playing field, we do not want a, a, a playing field where we become beholden to an authoritarian state that under President Xi, you know, despite our best wishes and our best intentions for our relationship in the past, has proven far more assertive, far more authoritarian, far more challenging uh, than we had anticipated. And the wolf warrior diplomacy points to a gravely chilling dimension to China's uh, finding its way with its great, great growing power. Uh, that's deeply unsettling. And while our neighbours may be uh, 
relatively mute. Some of them are quite mute about how strongly they support AUKUS or how deeply they disagree with AUKUS. The bottom line is that all of them are equally unnerved by wolf warrior diplomacy and sharp power. All of us are uneasy and uncomfortable uh, and really want to see a change. We, we, we want China. We want trade with China. Nobody wants to stop that. We want China to be a player, but we're deeply unsettled by the manifestation of this authoritarian government under under the current government of President Xi. In the interest of, of, of fairness, though, as well, John, it could be construed certainly from the Chinese perspective that it's an action reaction you know it's it's you know where, where did this start and, and I'll maybe ask you Chindu to maybe comment on that from the Chinese perspective uh, because it strikes me as though you know the old saying there are always three three sides to a story yours mine and the truth uh, and that strikes me as particularly important in this context uh, but also exceptionally important for the whole world uh, because the risk posed by this are so tremendous. So m- maybe your thoughts on, on the Chinese perspective. Yes, this is a, a, a big topic, uh, as you know, it takes a lot of time probably to uh, mm-hmm. pay attention mm-hmm. to this um, nuanced position, yeah. nuanced differences among countries. Uh, for example, you know, I, I, when I was uh, in Australia, I, I miss Australia, I miss mm. Melbourne, you know, the mm. coffee. <laughs> mm-hmm. yeah. uh, you know, like 2015, 2016, when I left, uh, and then 2017, I found the media, I still pay attention uh, to that. Um, you know, there's a hysteria about uh, you know, Chinese political interference, Chinese spying, Chinese students, Chinese, uh, you know, Confucius Institutes, everything in China is put uh, and an active uh, light like China is uh, threatening uh, Australia's you know economy, technology, or security. You know, from Chinese point of view, I feel puzzled. You know, because uh, if you ask anyone today, even today, on the streets of Beijing or Shanghai, you know, what's your impression of Australia? Uh, nine out of ten, I can assure you, would say. People would say, oh, I have a good impression about Australia, beautiful beach, you know, nice people, uh, good place for uh, further education, doing trade, you know, uh, immigration or investment. Uh, that's the impression, basically. So when people talked about China threatening Australia or Chinese missile, uh, you know, could reach Sydney, as reported in some of the local media, I was amused. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> I talked to a friend at that time. I said, oh, you see, uh, look at the coverage. You know, they have a clause uh, describing the Chinese DF-21. Like, they say, which could reach Sydney. Mm-hmm. I said, unless China is crazy, we will never think of <laughs> you know, uh, firing the missile toward Australia because uh, for Chinese people, Australia is never is never uh, the the rival, uh, mm. not to mention enemy or a country with hostility toward China. Mm. But mm. with that being said, we do have our problems. For example, I would say mostly uh, is this this kind of concern or fear on Australian side or the lack of understanding or misunderstanding about China, about China's political system, about Chinese culture, about China growing rapidly. You know, whether China, you know, is growing big and bigger, like we are living this under the shadow of China. You know, what will China do to us? Uh, you know, uh, you know how big uh, a threat China will become to us if we don't listen to them, for example. Things like that. Some of mm. that justified probably, in particular after this economic uh, measures taken by Beijing, that does not help probably. Mm. 
And again, I would say, you know, for 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 people, people see also see that you know, uh, uh, except for economic matters, you know, on security issue, Australia appears to be an extension of Washington's foreign policy. Uh, that is the understanding. But uh, you know, that's 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 okay. You know, people would say that's all right. You know, we are doing business with Australia. That's fine. You know, because we we are not an enemy of the United States. You know, we don't see the U.S. as an enemy of China. That's all right. You know, U.S. having war in Iraq, in Afghanistan, in other places, but that's fine. We don't agree with that, but that's okay. Uh, so when Australia, you know, in 2017, you know, this uh, uh, all kinds of negative coverage, but with sub- little substantial evidence about the Chinese, you know, interference in, in the internal affairs of Australia. You know, for me, because China has a policy of non-interference, in the internal affairs of other countries, mostly because China does not welcome other countries to interfere in its internal affairs, remember. Mm, so mm, it mm. has a strict policy of not to get in, involved in uh, the domestic affairs of another country. Mm. Uh, so you know, when people say that, I would say, no, 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 it's not the case. China would hate to intervene in the uh, Australian politics, like, uh, uh, like election, like the foreign policy. Yeah, China would love Australia to have a, a more friendly policy toward China. Obviously, every country would love to have mm, that, right? Mm, That's understandable, mm, mm. but they would not uh, you know, do something to intervene. And yeah. also in 2018, you know, after this uh, very negative coverage, very negative discussion about China, and then in 2018, Huawei was kicked out of the Australian market. Remember, Australia is the first country to kick Huawei out of their 5G network. That is, you know, that is a very, I would say that is very negative mm-hmm. uh, in terms of the effects on the Chinese. It was not widely covered, you know, despite this being the first, uh, Australia being the first country, uh, because people still think, you know, probably that's fine. You know, other countries will still use Huawei. But of course, you know, what we know later on, there's a, there's a you know, a economic war or trade mm-hmm. war launched yeah. by Trump against China, then Huawei becomes one of the top issues uh, mm-hmm. in this uh, uh, dispute between uh, China and the U.S. So Huawei was uh, uh, put under severe uh, sanction uh, by the U.S. And the U.S. also put, uh, you know, I would say, among, uh, tremendous pressure on its allies, basically mm-hmm. to refuse Huawei to enter into their market. You know, mm-hmm. that's unfair. You can say that. Uh, of course, that's, that, that is the case. Um, but, you know, uh, plus... Huawei and plus a lot of negative, uh, uh, you know, this is this I would say sentiment uh, yeah. inside Australia, and then uh, you have this, uh, you know, Australian calling for uh, the investigation of the origin of uh, the uh, pandemic of the virus over there. Uh, you know, John also said that many people say that's because of Australia being the first country calling for international investigation of the origin of the virus, so China retaliated against Australia. I would say no, it's not the case. It's accumulation of a series of issues. For example, restriction of Chinese investment. Uh, for example, you know, uh, canceling of contracts uh, between the two countries. Things like that. You can see the relationship or the trust is somehow being, uh, you know, uh, losing mm. between the two countries. And then. You know, China took measures against Australia, economic measures, uh, of course. And uh, so we see the relationship getting worse and worse, unfortunately. Mm. Uh, but uh, overall, 
you know, the Chinese side, I would say they still see uh, Australia as a very important trading partner. Mm. Uh, I would say, you know, China's, you know, uh, application to join CPTPP actually provides an opportunity for the two countries to fix their relationship. For example, Australian sides, of course, will talk to the Chinese side. If you want to join CPTPP, we should solve our problems first. And then we can talk about other uh, conditions. Example, uh, wow. so I, th- I think there's a there is a, this uh, 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 you know a f- a factors for the two countries to actually use that as an opportunity to fix the problem and improve their relationship and improve the trust uh, mm. between the two countries. You know, when John talk about uh, you know China's military development. Can I respond a little bit to that too? Yeah, please. Uh, because there's a lot of points over there. No, I, I uh, totally understand know, that. Absolutely. Please go ahead. Yeah, the military development, many people would say, you know, oh, Chinese military development is threatening. I, I would agree, China's rapid military development, uh, I would say that's the fact, and no deny about that. Uh, but again, you know, we should take that into uh, perspective. For example, uh, China's rapid economic uh, development. Uh, China is the second largest economy, and uh, naturally, it will uh, spend a certain percentage of its GDP on uh, defense, just like every country does. So 1.7% of its uh, uh, defense spending, uh, that's a lot of money. Uh, If you compare that to the US, it's about 3.7% of the GDP on military spending. Uh, I think China spends in percentage-wise is lower uh, than Korea, than Vietnam, I think lower than Australia. Australia is probably a 2.1 percentage of GDP on military spending. Um, you know, for China, the security concern, you know, on one hand, you know, that's natural development, I would argue, you know, country develops economy, you have your interest to protect, for example, one belt, one road. You know, China has its interests in every corner of the world today. But China is not building military posts everywhere around the world like the U.S. does, you know, to protect its interests because mm-hmm. China does not believe in, uh, you, you know, that's the, the best choice to protect its interests. Mm-hmm. Um, but why you would ask why China is still building its military? I would say it's mostly periphery uh, security. For example, Taiwan issue, you know, South China Sea issue. That's the most concern. Remember, China has the, uh, you know, has, uh, has a, a, you know, a, a neighboring countries on border, like 14 countries. Mm. And then you have countries, uh, neighboring countries uh, overseas, uh, like Japan, uh, uh, South Korea, you know, etc. And uh, Southeast Asian countries. Uh, so there's a security issue. I would say mostly it's really about the U.S. It's not about Australia. It's not about the, uh, not about the U.K. or France or Germany. No, because the U.S., would say they would do everything to defend Taiwan in the event of a war. So, you know, for the Chinese side, what would you do? Uh, let's put the sovereignty issue aside a little bit. Uh, you know, um, as a big country, as a country with a strong tradition of unification of the country in terms of territorial integrity, of a country with a strong tradition of, uh, of independence, Mm-hmm. Uh, so they would say, you know, we don't rely on Russia. We don't rely on any other country. We would rely on ourselves and to protect ourselves. Uh, if you look at the, 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 the development, it's really about, uh, you know, some would say deterring, uh, you know, tools of weapons 
uh, basically, they call it, uh, they want to use the weapon to prevent the U.S. involvement in uh, the cross-street uh, relationship in the event of a war. You know, if Taiwan declares independence today, most likely there will probably will be a, a military conflict. And then, of course, that's a test for China, that's a test for, for, for Washington, uh, but uh, you always prepare for the worst. Uh, so in that sense, I would say, you know, Chinese military uh, development, no, it's not for Australia. It's not targeting at any other country, but mostly I would say the China-US relationship. John, any... Fantastic, yeah. Chim Duo. Yeah. yeah. No, look, Maz, this is really fascinating. Grist for the mill. I'm really glad to hear all this. Very interesting, your chronology, Chim Duo, and I appreciate you outlining it. I think, you know... Uh, between us, we, it's the, con, the comparing and contrasting, you're right. And, Maz, you made the point earlier about there being three three perspectives. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think you're probably right because I'm gonna, I've got another perspective and I look back to 2017. Malcolm Turnbull was Prime Minister of Australia. This is the man who was pushing the free trade agreement uh, with with China, was talking, you know, was speaking up the positives of the relationship with China, had nothing but positive things to say about the relationship with China. Launched Hugh White's publication, his book on uh, on the China issues, can't remember exactly. It wasn't the China choice; it was his next one. He's written a few on the same kind of permutations of the same kind of issue. Um, Malcolm Turnbull happily launched it. He was sympathetic and you know got the sense that uh, this is all well and good. Uh, and yet things really started to change. When he became prime minister, he started getting briefed in on mm. a range of things that were happening. You know, the foreign interference that uh, Chindor touched on, the espionage, uh, the 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 attempts by to buy off people like Sam Dastiari, which uh, blew up in in Sam's face, uh, uh, and really brought to to mind the issue of foreign in, uh, interference. Uh, the ASIO annual reports have been featuring this for a number of years now, but they really started to spike from about 2015, 16, 17 onwards. Um, the Confucius Institutes became very closely associated with a policy straitjacket that basically you had to conform with a, with a PRC uh, political perspective on the Chinese history and Chinese culture, which became, you know, for liberal institutions like the Australian National University, where I belong, it was not, it was intolerable, you know, that's not the way we operate. We don't get told how to think or, or how to, how to, mm. how to uh, research or to teach. Um, so that all of those kind of issues really, you know, Chindor said there's little evidence. Well, there's actually a fair amount of evidence, actually. It's cumulatively. Uh, there's enough stuff there. And then along the way, you know, Australia started pushing back on, on, on Huawei. And, yes, there's probably a, a degree of uh, cross-checking of notes with the United States, but people need to appreciate Australia's enormously invested in its security relationship with the United States. The United States matters to Australia enormously, has done since 1941, 42, mm. uh, and, and probably will do. You know, we just commemorated um, 70 years of the uh, the ANZUS alliance. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a piece of paper, 800 words long, an essay. It is now just the, the trellis upon which many other bilateral and multilateral relationships are built that are incredibly important to Australia, fundamentally important to Australia's sense of uh, its place in the world, you know, in an attempt to reconcile Australia's fear of abandonment and its fear of entrapment, it's come down on the view that it needs to support the United States. Mm. Now, 
Now, at the same time, though, and the, there's a really interesting book written by uh, one of our uh, people it was recently at the, uh, the Coral Bell School of Asia Pacific Affairs, um, Shannon Tower, called Independent Ally. Australia makes its policy decisions on its own estimation of its own interests. And they happen to quite often align with its perception of the interests of the United States. Um, and very interestingly, in it, that uh, China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, has really come out talking in a way that is, um, it, you know, been very, very critical of Australia. And um, and that's generated considerable pushback. On, on Huawei, I think it's just make, worth making the point that um, it really was a, an assessment made on the prospects of a system that was potentially going to be very dominant and exert a undue uh, disproportionate influence on Australian politics and on Australian ability to, to operate independently if it was to allow Huawei to get its way. Mm. Uh, and essentially the technology, it's now reasonably well understood, the 5G technology the barriers that were available for 3 and 4G technology to protect parts of the core infrastructure that were seen as part of national security infrastructure are much less able to be secured, mm. in, a, in a, particularly if you're going to adopt Huawei technology. So um, that was then in 2020, as Qingdu pointed out, you know, the COVID investigation, uh, China sought to retaliate uh, as a response to an accumulation of the issues there's no question in my mind, Australia handled that pretty darn clumsily. We could have done better, but it wasn't invalid. What surprises me, Chindor, why didn't President Xi take this and flip it and say, you know what, Australia, you're absolutely right. We are going to take the lead in investigating this completely transparently and thoroughly, and we're going to prove to the world that we are the responsible agent that is actually going to make sure that there is never a repeat of the COVID virus. We are going to lead the world in making sure that we, the global community, will never suffer a pandemic like this again. Maybe Instead, that's a good question to, to ask. Why would that not have happened, Chindu? Uh, this is a good question. You know, looking back, you know, for what happened between China and Australia, for example, I would say both countries can or could have handled their relationship in a better way, you know, Absolutely. step back a little bit, you know, and have more trust and talk to each other. You know, we could have done a better job at maintaining uh, a strong trust, a strong relationship between the two countries in that, and then we would have a security guaranteed. There's no fear about each other. Uh, as for the specific question, I think, you know, there's a, uh, remember, uh, John, uh, at that time, you know, uh, Donald Trump was still there. You know, there was mm. a lot of uh, talk in the United States. They say, you know, oh, China should compensate for the loss of, uh, you know, people's lives, for the loss of uh, the, the medical expenses. People talk about the trillions of dollars China should pay, for, not only for the U.S., probably for the entire world. That would mean the end of China. Mm. So there is a serious concern uh, in Beijing. You know, people would say, oh, gosh. If we uh, cooperate in a, in a more cooperative manner uh, to deal with the issue, somehow you would admit, yes, it's our fault. Yeah, it's in, a, a origin is in Wuhan, it's in China. And, uh, you know, that kind of environment, the international environment, make, made things somehow very difficult to handle. When Australia uh, stood out and calling for the investigation, 
you know, if on, on a second level, I would say, if China say, oh, Australia was right, we should do this. Mm. It's like, uh, oh, China is following uh, the Australia, you know, for big powers, for big countries. Yeah. China would say, no problem. If WHO is calling for investigation, China fully cooperate with WHO, but mm. probably not with any other individual country. And, including the US. And this highlights a, a, an issue, right? Again, it's a, I think, nation level confirmation bias comes into play. Every nation undoubtedly can find examples where the other nation had done something wrong. Uh, you know, to tie in John's points about Huawei, uh, about, uh, uh, in fact, I, I just recently published a paper on some of the gray, uh, gray zone warfare uh, concerns mm. from. Uh, countries like Russia, China, and so on. Uh, so there's there's ample examples. I have absolutely no doubt that China and Russia can find examples of the Western nations, including Australia, playing in their sovereign, uh, what they perceive to be their sovereign space, whether in the in the digital uh, domain or even you know on their home home soil. I have absolutely no doubt uh, that every side can do that, and therein lies the issue. I wonder yep. is if a lot of this. In fact, I'm sure it is. A lot of this rhetoric that we're hearing is for domestic audiences because it's certainly for Australia. As you said, China doesn't consider Australia to be a threat. Uh, in fact, it's to do with the US. Uh, Australia has, of course, sided with the US, and that's a, you know, for many reasons, as John identified, uh, that's not a surprise. And like you said, China you know, has no concern about that. But how much risk are we exposing the world to by these rhetorics that are really for the domestic audience because China can't, like you just said, China couldn't admit uh, Wuhan, uh, uh, origin of virus investigation, etc., because it couldn't be perceived as weak domestically, probably mostly, to protect its own uh, survival, I guess, particularly not by a country that is seen as a middle-level country like Australia. So, where do we go from here? Because the, the, it strikes me as though this is the, the there is no how do we steer the ship basically? Because the domestic audiences require every individual country to assert dominance to show that they're powerful. Otherwise, they face risk domestically, whether in a democratic system or in you know the uh, CCP. So my my sense is that this this reveals a degree of and, and Chindor's comments touched on this, a degree of nervousness and vulnerability domestically on the Chinese front um, that uh, I think is is uh, understandable, you know, and I, I like to say, you know, uh, everybody loves a good set of double standards. Everybody likes a set of standards for them and a set of standards for someone else, for the others, and that applies in international relations mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. You know, every, we all like to point out the faults of the other and never like to admit our own. And, mm. and, and and Australia is as guilty of this as everybody else. Mm. We're all as bad as uh, each other. I mean, I think it's helpful if we admit that to each other, to ourselves 100%. at least, if we're honest with ourselves mm. about that. Um, and and I think, you know, I like what Chindua said. We need to be thinking about ways to extra, extricating ourselves from this corner we found ourselves in. Do we, you know, we don't want we don't want things to get worse. We want things to get better. Um, but I think it's important for us to be realistic about what we're facing. And I think it's important to think, and I just wanted to touch on a couple of things, particularly about uh, the military spending of China and America, China's uh, economic vulnerability. Uh, it is spending 
you know, 1.7% of, of its GDP, apparently. And I'm not sure if the figures are accurate. I mean, we don't have great transparency. In Australia, we have defence white papers. We have really very outspoken, open declaratory policy, making very clear about how we spend our money and the reasons we spend our money the way we do. China is much more opaque about that. And it would be very helpful, in my view, if China was more transparent about its funding and its intentions. Now, thinking about intentions, I think, you know, I like, I'm a historian, you know, I love history, right? And I think there's a bit of a parallel. There's a limits to the parallel, but play, play, humor me for a moment. I think there's a parallel between the emergence of China in the 21st century and the emergence of the British Empire. And let me, so Britain experienced the Industrial Revolution. It had coal, uh, it, it, it had the inventions of steam engines. And it then developed, it needed markets and it needed raw materials. So it started expanding its empire for markets and raw materials. And then it needed security for those, the East India companies, et cetera, those mm. corporations that were semi-state corporations. Um, sounds eerily familiar, mm. doesn't it? Uh, that, that actually needed security. And then they, they needed governance. And, and over, so when Francis Drake, you know, explored the ocean, there was no manifesto for British domination of the world. It happened incrementally and it happened over a couple of hundred years. Now, I think what we're seeing is China's emergence as an empire on steroids. Now, there's no manifesto. There's no de declaration for Chinese domination of the world. It's a manifestation of the trade, of, it, of, of, the, of the economic dynamics. It needs raw materials. It needs markets. It needs security of supply. It's worried about the Malacca Strait, understandably. It's got a very small exclusive economic zone under the UN Convention on the Law of the Sea. So it wants to expand in the South China Sea and it wants to buy up islands in the South Pacific like Kiribati. Perfectly understandable on one level. But we need to be clear about what's going on. And I think... While there is no manifestation, manifesto of Chinese global domination, there is a fear, particularly in light of President Xi's very opaque management of an author increasingly authoritarian state with a massive increase in defence spending. This is generating enormous nerves globally, mm. which is why you're seeing Britain playing in Asia, the, the German frigate coming to Australia, the Dutch playing, the Canadians now talking about playing in the Indo-Pacific. Uh, all of these countries and bodies, the French, mm. of course, have been there for a while, ages. Um, all of these now talking about an Indo-Pacific strategy. Why? Because they've got nervous. They've got nervous. In my view, it's an, a nervousness that China could dispel if it chose to behave differently, if it chose to be more transparent and more and more more open in its approach to society. And, of course, here the Taiwan question comes in because Taiwan is a humiliating demonstration of what an open democracy with Chinese characteristics looks like. And, unfortunately, the handling of Hong Kong, where the one country, two systems was at work for nearly three decades now, the, 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 the cancellation of one country, two systems has sent a powerful and chilling message to Taiwan and to Japan and to the region that China is not going to tolerate anything else. Mm. And that means that Taiwan, this, this beacon of democracy, this country that actually is an economic dynamo in and of its own right, country the population of Australia, it's enormously economic mm. dynamic, mm. economically dynamic. Um, it, it is now sending, it is 
kind of by example showing up at Xi and, and Xi's China. Um, and it seems such a shame to me that Xi doesn't take this and flip it, much like I tried to say we should flip the whole COVID thing. Why doesn't Xi flip this and say, hey, you know what? We realise that the greater path for, um, you know, the the dialectic of, of communism is actually probably, if we if we rebadge it, I mean, they've rebadged communism half a dozen times already. But let's face it, it doesn't look anything like what Mao Chairman Mao talked about. Um, let's rebadge it and make it look a bit like Taiwanese democracy. Um, I mean, even, even within the one-party state, allow for some democracy in the one-party state. You call it the parties within the party. I don't know. Mm-hmm. There's ways you can skin this cat differently that can allay fears. But, of course, maybe Chindu can alert, you know, enlighten us more. My sense is perhaps one of the reasons why that doesn't happen is because President Xi is actually more nervous than he's letting on. Um, but one other point just about the, the spending on defence. The United States was instrumental in inviting China into the World Trade Organization. It is now spending to compete with the United States. I think that's a real travesty. It's a shame. Japan never felt it needed to compete with the United States. When it was the top dog in the 70s and 80s and 90s, when everyone was worried in the United States was worried about Japan, Japan did not boost its spending beyond 1% of GDP, even though it probably could have. My sense, it's a real shame that China is not viewing this as a partnership rather than seeing this as a competition, a contestation and a conflict, that it not look to see this more as a, a as a more like a sporting competition rather than a war. Let's say if we use the metaphor, this is why I'm thinking that continuum is useful to think of in a positive way. And which is why I'm actually pretty upbeat about the quad. The quad, you know, it's so, you know, in, in, in coming out of well, Wang Yi's office in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs in Beijing, you hear about it in very dark Manichaean terms. Uh, I'm thinking, hang on a minute, this is good. Competition is good, you know. Getting India to look beyond itself and actually invest in vaccines in the Pacific, why is that bad? That's not bad. That's good, you know. Getting Australia and, Indo- and, and India to cooperate, we've been trying to do that for decades, for generations. That's good, right? Mm-hmm. Um Engaging with Japan is good. It's actually good. And Japan's got good relations, you know, relatively good relations with everybody. It wants to have better relationships with, with China. And let's not forget, Japan is the country, a colleague of mine, Amy King, did a great, her thesis, a PhD thesis, was on the investment in the Japan made in China in the to acts of reparation as much as anything in the 50s, 60s and 70s that Japan Japan did in a quite generous way with self-interest in mind, of course, everybody does, but China has kind of erased that from its history. And now why? Why did you bother erasing? That's a really good, there's some good things happening between China and Japan. Maybe we'll and let Chindu respond to some, some, of those, some of those questions because yeah. uh, I can see him nodding. A, a, a lot. Yeah. <laughs> There's and again, gentlemen, I'm conscious. Uh, I'm very conscious of that. These are all big topics, uh, and and time. Yeah, there's uh, a I've, lot. I mentioned. Yeah. Let, let me yeah. respond a little bit to you know uh, China, Japan, mostly about the Diaoyu Islands. You know, of course, uh, there's a there's a Japanese name for it. Um, you know, uh, uh, interestingly, uh, the controversy uh, developed. I think in 2012 or even earlier uh, around that time the opposition party of Japan came to power. The opposition party, interestingly, actually has a good relationship with China. But unfortunately, they had no experience of handling domestic and foreign affairs. And they somehow 
you know, received an advice to nationalize the Diaoyu Islands. And then they think that would be easier to handle the relationship with China. But on the Chinese point of view is nationalize the Diaoyu Islands. That means, oh, that's a formal announcement of uh, Diaoyu Islands belonging to Japan. That's part of Japan. So that's a change of status quo, which is, you know, there's a dispute, but we don't touch upon that. Japan can claim that's part of Japan. China can claim that's part of China. But, you know, that's a thorny issue. Let's leave it aside and focus on our cooperation. But with the, with the, the declaration of nationalization of that, you know, islands, it changed the status quo. And then it incites a strong response from the Chinese side. And then we see the worsening of the relationship between the two countries. I would say that's a very unfortunate, you know. They should have handled it much mm. better way. Mm. But anyway, that's uh, you know, China-Japan. Let's respond a little bit to John, uh, what John said about the China-US, you know, competition. Uh, you know, I see that there's an expectation, you know, China could become the second Japan, you know, uh, largely. Uh, following the lead of the U.S. and be part of uh, the mostly West-dominated international system. Uh, I would say for most of the part of the time, China uh, was, I would say, uh, in that case, you know, in WTO, uh, in the international organization, uh, you know, uh, IMF, World uh, Bank, you know, China is part of that, working with uh, Western countries. There were some disputes, but that's okay. People can manage, you know, that differences. Uh, but as China continued to grow, I would say then there's an issue, uh, you know, that's uh, realists in the U.S. would say fundamentally it's about, uh, uh, they would call it, a, a, they call it a structural issue mm -hmm. uh, because there's only one country could be at the top. With China continuing to grow, you know, you know China's growth itself is a challenge to the U.S. primacy international primacy. Remember the trade war. Trade war was launched by Donald Trump, was not launched by China. People tend to say, oh, China-US trade war, China-US tech war, China-US, you know, this war and that war. You know, <laughs> China would love to sit down to talk to the US side and solve the problem instead of having that kind of, uh, you know, basically tariffs on products and services from another country. Uh, because neither country can benefit from that kind of practice. But anyway, uh, that is a case. You know, now today, Biden administration is talking about fierce competition with China. You know, Chinese people would ask the question, competing for what? China is not competing with the United States. Uh, you know, can we say, you know, John also said competition is good. Competition technology is good. Uh, I would say we should be open and see, you know, which country can, you know, do better in R&D, you know, you know, ultimately that will help the human being, you know, all of us will benefit from the advancement in the US technology or the advancement in China technology. I would say partly because of the lack of trust between the two countries, mm -hmm. partly because of the, you know, since 2015, actually, if I'm not wrong, you know, there's a big debate inside the US, whether our engagement policy with China has failed in a sense of China is not becoming a Western-style democracy. So people will say, you know, we failed. We failed to change China into a democracy. Mm -hmm. uh, I would say, you know, why would you want to change China into a Western democracy? 
And then, you know, it's, it's, it's a philosophical issue. People would talk about different political system, which system works better, you know. I, I'll give that. I think China has a lot to catch on in terms of openness, in terms of market access, in terms of transparency, uh, in terms of being, uh, you know, more free, I would say. Mm-hmm. Uh, China could do a lot in that respect because ultimately that will benefit China. You know, I mm-hmm. sit in Australia. I know Australia is a very open society. Is a very free society, and that's probably also explains why people are afraid of. You know, once you have this sense, oh, China is uh, somehow probably not our friend, and then you have a focus on the Chinese activity, and then you see everything is is wrong. Mm. Actually, Chinese involvement or Chinese investment in Australia is tiny compared to the investment from us from you know, United States, from the UK, even from I think Netherlands. So people see all Chinese investment is like a monster. No, no, it's a very small amount of Chinese investment. I think it's a perception. You know, perception matters. Unfortunately, if you have such a negative perception, then everything about China is somehow being seen in a negative light. That's a very unfortunate, I would say. And also, you know, for China, China is not competing with the U.S. for global uh, dominance. I know, and but with that said. I understand the, the 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 concern, the nervousness of countries like Australia, uh, like the UK, uh, probably uh, European countries too, or our neighboring countries. Uh, Chinese people sometimes, I would say, not sensitive to that, not sensitive enough to that. Mm. You know, we would say, oh, China is still a developing country. China is still far away from being a rich country. Uh, in particular, in terms of per capita GDP, China is about like a I think it ranks the 80th uh, somewhere around the world. So it's still mm. in the middle. So China, people would say, you know, we still have a long way to go. People don't see their progress as something really impressive as seen from overseas. Mm. So there's a there's a, this discrepancy between the perception. Mm. And and then, then people are not sensitive enough to, to our neighboring countries' uh, concern uh, about our behavior, about our policy, about our rhetoric even. You know, our politicians or our spokesperson, you know, if you say something, you know, there's a there's impact because you are mm. a big country. Right. So mm. we I think in that sense, China should learn to improve in that respect because China is not a big power. And now it's becoming a big power and somehow, you know, is not mature enough um, in I would say it's not sophisticated enough in communicating with the outside world, including countries mm. like Australia, we could yeah. do a good job in that sense. So that, that's part of uh, the issue. Can uh, I just, pe- just pick up Chinese- on something there that you said, Chindu, because I think it, it actually speaks to an, an, another point and a thought that pops up. I uh, recently read a really bo- a good book, uh, Rule Makers, Rule Breakers, about the impact of culture and why certain uh, you know, cultures that are tight, like China, tight in the sense that they have strict norms and rules, uh, uh, mm-hmm. as opposed to countries like Australia that are loose, uh, you know, where just about everything goes and we're open, uh, transparent, etc. Uh, comes down to ultimately pressures uh, and survival. It's a book by Michel Gelfond, uh, a very prominent uh, uh, researcher in the field of culture. And another one that also springs to mind, uh, just recently interviewed Douglas Fields, who wrote another really great book, Why We Snap, and he's provided nine neurological triggers that exist both individually and in societies, why countries respond in certain ways. And, and I just want to bring in one point here that, and I want to ask you, what do you think? It strikes me as though we in the West 
don't necessarily give enough credence to the insult China perceives uh, from its growth, from its past. And of course, here we can bring in the you know, century of humiliation, just the rhetoric of that uh, has deep emotional ties. And same, China perhaps does understand how the Western world sees the global world order, whatever you want to call it, the established world order, uh, is being threatened. And all of these are triggers for emotional outbursts uh, and non-rational responses. What are your thoughts on that? And I'll maybe go to Chindu first and then we'll go to John. Uh, that's a, a, a good point, uh, um, as interesting point, I would say. Yes, obviously, culturally, uh, you know, tradition and also history, uh, you know, do play a very important part in every country, in our perception about the outside world, about our relationship with uh, uh, other countries. Uh, for example, for China, people do, uh, you know, history is relevant. It's still relevant. History, uh, people, that's that's a particular... I agree more, Chindu. Yeah. Yeah, that, that explains, you know, people why, uh, you know, Chinese people, obviously, including the uh, the governments, uh, they are very sensitive, um, you know, to being treated in a, you know, unequal way, uh, in a way of lack of respect, uh, they perceive, you know. So if they see that as a, a respect or disrespect, they would probably respond in a negative way. Uh, if they see, you know, uh, they are treated with uh, equality, with respect, usually there's a nice response. I think it's not only China. If you look at the mostly developing countries, you know, a lot of countries, you know, once colonized by 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 the UK or France, uh, in general, people are very sensitive uh, to how they are being treated, how they are being seen. Uh, if you talk to people from African countries, even Indians include, included, uh, so I, I agree. I think, you know, there there is a point. Now, you know, with China's development, people would say people are becoming more confident. People love to see probably uh, they would say, you know, we are equal so we can do things in a way uh, we can start with each other in a more uh, equal manner. Uh, but of course, you know, we know today's world is still dominated by the U.S. and the West at large uh, in general. Uh, and then, you know, people sometimes will see, you know, these things or that matter is not dealt with in an equal way, mm-hmm. uh, in an equal manner. Uh, and then I would say, uh, naturally, uh, there, will, there will be some issues, some differences between uh, China and the U.S., for example, uh, in that sense. And uh, so for, for the, you know, the, the, the crisis, the pandemic crisis somehow, you know, created this uh, big problem for people to uh, mingle with each other, to visit each other, and for scholars to talk to each other and to share our, uh, you know, what do you think about this issue mm-hmm. on that issue, which yeah, we communicate people people more policy. and understand mm-hmm. the other mm-hmm. side. In mm-hmm. that way, we can better deal with our relationship, you know. Uh, sometimes we don't understand why you are thinking in that way, why you do things in that manner, you know, like often, uh, there's uh, uh, obviously rationale, there's explanation we need to understand. I don't think China is uh, in a position like, uh, you know, being described as aggressive, offensive, you know, assertive, uh, or trying to somehow, you know, start disputes with other countries. No, China's focus, primary focus is a domestic uh, issue. 
Uh, that's why Chinese government stressed so much about stability because our history tells us if there's a chaos, you know, with a population of 1.4 billion people, that would be a big, big trouble for the entire nation. Mm. So stability, you know, that's why they stress so much about norms, about the order, you know, and that ex- mm. also explains, you know, China compared with uh, Western society in general, uh, they are, they're different in a sense. Mm. Uh, but when it comes to, uh, I would say, if you go deeper, uh, to the to the heart, you would see we are more or less the same. You know, people are friendly, people are nice to each other. You know, if you look at Australian people, Chinese people, they're good friends. I have a lot of friends in Australia. Mm. Similarly, I, I believe John has friends in China too. Mm. You mm. know, so yeah. we need to somehow to strengthen the understanding and to reduce the 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 misunderstanding, mm. the mistrust. Mm. And uh, and uh, with that being said, I would say China US. I tend to agree there's a big issue that is, you know, how to deal with this relationship. If China continues to grow and it continues to grow now, yeah. how will the U.S. deal with another country, which is a peer power in terms of technology, in terms of military power, in terms of economy? Will the U.S. view China as an equal partner or will China view, you know, will U.S. view China as, as a country somehow we need to do to slow their innovation, as I said, one U.S. official, mm-hmm. <laughs> to slow the pace of a Chinese innovation or to slow the Chinese growth. You yeah. know, it's, it's really a big choice for Washington too. Yeah, John. So, yeah, great points, Chindu. Thank you, and thank you, Maz, for hosting this. This is really interesting discussion. I want to go back to your point about the trade war launched by Trump. It didn't happen in a vacuum, okay? Trump was responding to very strong domestic political stimulus, which was the Rust Belt and the sense of technological espionage on an industrial scale, where many of the items of technology in, in China appear to look remarkably like technology that was, you know, originally designed or built in the United States. There was a sense and perception is reality, let's face it. There is a sense of grievance in the United States that China joined the WTO and then played the United States, tricked the United States. And this is something that Trump really tapped Mm. into. And Biden, I think, is really struggling to deal with as well. Mm. Um, And I think that's an important point to note. I I would also make make the point about um, uh, China, you know, it talks about the centre of humiliation and it likes to stress that. I'm just thinking... Can we not move on? I get that. You know, that was, it was terrible what happened. Japan has tried to make amends. I think the world is a different place. I mean, even Australia. It was only 1967 that we got rid of the white Australia policy, you know. It was very, very racist. Australia today, in policy terms, is not. It is a very multicultural country. And a quarter of our population is migrants. Um, and about, about a good half of that is um, are, are from Asia from Northeast Asia, Southeast Asia, and South Asia. I mean, it's a very diverse country. It's a very inclusive and welcoming country now. Um, and so to, to harp on about the centre of humiliation, it's like it's, it's, it's an anachronistic concept. Uh, no one is contemplating taking, a, a you know, the kind of racist policies that were in the case that Australia was founded on 120 years ago. But we're a long way away from that. 
Um, but John, just on that, just sorry, just on that point though, I mean, isn't that the yeah. same, the very issue that say Australia is is trying to reconcile with its indigenous population? It's about not Indeed. acknowledging history and the past, and, which is obviously, you know, for for but many of us are, man. Yeah, at the, yeah, yeah. You look at what's happening. States, state governments are looking to, get, to develop treaties. Mm-hmm. You know, there's some denial in parts of in parts of the population. But this is the diffuse governance. We have eight state and territory Mm. governments, we have a federal government, we have different parties, and in that mix is a mixture of views that's bubbling up. So the treaties are emerging, there's a lot of debate, a lot of contestation, which I think is really healthy, and far more acknowledgement of this than ever before. As a kid, I grew up, never heard these stories. Now I have a much greater awareness. Are we due the same? Should we, as 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 a world... Do the same for be, you know. Be more like open China. and more understanding yeah. about about our past. Mm-hmm. Yes, mm-hmm. Um, I think there was a couple of things. I think you know I, I'm a big fan of Karl Popper and his book, The Open Society and Its Enemies, mm-hmm. and um, I'm concerned that China is increasingly a closed society. You know, we've seen the Great Firewall of China emerge. Um, you know, when Bill Clinton was president of the United States, he saw the internet as this liberating, uh, equalizing you know, empowering of the of democracy and, free, and freedom of political expression that has been completely reversed in, in the case of China and other countries that have sought to emulate its approach to the use of technology to control the state. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a shame. And it's reinforced this fear, this fear of a of a, a not a democracy, because democracies, as they say, don't go to war against, against each other, but of an authoritarian state that is run away from democracy, that is tried to reinforce authoritarianism under President Xi in particular, um, but is that is generating uh, a pushback and a fear in particularly countries like the United States, which let's not forget, the United States is a particularly warlike country. It is. It is. It conducted a, a civil war where they, you know, Americans killed Americans in the hundreds of thousands. Uh, and it is a war that is still deeply in, in, engaging for Americans to this day. Uh, it is a country that is, you know, it's built up its military capabilities. It, it's, a, it's got an armed force that is an inc- incredibly expensive hammer looking for a nail, mm. you know. Mm. Now, China has been very clever so far about refusing to present a nail. In the South China Sea, in its, you know, grey zone operations, in its application of warfare diplomacy, it's assiduously avoided presenting a nail. But I would contend that America's nervousness, its unease about its place in the world, makes the military option more attractive than ever. And I think that is something China has a role to play in, in allaying the concerns that are generating momentum for that as an option. Now, Van Jackson, an academic American guy in New Zealand at the moment, has talked about American foreign policy being misguided and being overly emphasising the military solution. I think he's right. And America is afraid that its economic prowess is waning. Relatively speaking, it feels the economic lever is not as strong and therefore is clutching onto the Mm. military one greater than ever. Uh, China has a role to play here in allaying its concerns. Um, and it needs, to, I think, to be looking to the future, not just about, you know, the great rejuvenation or the, the ending of the century in a century of the humiliation, uh, ending the centenary of that, sorry, mm-hmm. being a key milestone for 
China's coming out. China's already come out. It came out in 2008. You know, we, with the Olympic Games, the global financial crisis, how much assurance do you need? You're going to get it again with the Olympics next year, the Winter Olympics. Um, let's let's now be the bigger party. Mm. Now let's take the chip off our shoulders and be the great power, the magnanimous great power, and start doing what Teddy Roosevelt did, which is the great, you know, this is one of the great lines of, of American presidents, speak softly but carry a big stick. Mm. Speak softly, China. Mm. Come on. Mm. You can do it. You don't need to be speaking loudly anymore. You're already a great power, you know. Stop spreading fear. Stop scaring the horses. Um, change your ways a bit. Just be a little bit softer. Chindu, um, your response to that? That's an interesting comment from John. You know, I, I, I uh, let, let me respond a little bit about this. You know, in the uh, Western Palai, people describe that as a victimhood, you know, psychology of the Chinese side. You know, people say, you know, there's a good side, probably bad side too. And I would say within China, there's also discussion, you know, we, we, we need to move on. And uh, because we are a big power now, you know, at least the GDP, you know, uh, and also the size, the history, you know, this, this is a big country. And we should see ourselves in a more, in, in a way, not only within China, but also from outside China, in a more objective, more balanced way. Uh, we, we have a responsibility uh, for the peace and the stability of this region and of this world. Let me give you a couple of examples, you know, of China, what China is doing. Uh, you know, China, yes, China and the U.S. They view differently about the U.N., for example. China is the second mm. uh, contributor to the U.N. budget, you know, as it should be. And China is the second contributor to the peacekeeping operation fees, as it should be. And also China is the largest contributor of peacekeepers among the big five. The UN Security Council uh, members, the five members, China provides largest number of peacekeepers. If you plus that with this standby, you know, police force, China is actually the largest contributor to peacekeepers uh, to the UN. So China, see that you know that's my role to play. I want to contribute to peacekeeping, and China is doing that. And I give you another example of China is moving ahead. For example. You know, people, as we said, you can always find a problem with China. You can always criticize this and that. But uh, there are also uh, uh, on the other side. Uh, for example, you know, uh, Xi Jinping uh, pro uh, promised this goals, you know, 2030, 2060, peaking of carbon emission and also neutrality. Uh, that's a big promise. That's a promise actually surprised the world as well as the Chinese audience. You know, there are there are complaints actually inside China saying that the, the president making such a promise as a big promise, you know, as a developing country, we have a long way to go. And, and then, you know, you noticed this, uh, uh, the, the people call it shortage of power uh, in China. You know, some of the factories uh, were asked, you know, to operate only three days a week or four days a week because of the lack of, uh, of electricity. That's partly also partly because of the quota. You know, every province, you have a quota to produce the emissions and you are not allowed to, uh, to emit carbon dioxide, uh, you know, beyond that, that um, you know, quota amount. So you see there's a strict implementation of 
the climate change promises of China. Do you see that as a responsible behavior or do you see that as irresponsible behavior? I would say China is trying to be very hard to be responsible in terms of climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, if China wants to be a spoiler of the world, China can say, you know, we are a developing country, sorry, we cannot do that. You know, nobody expects China to reach neutrality in 2060. Uh, of course, China is smart in terms of the renewable energy. China is the biggest investor. Uh, China sees that as another revolution. Uh, China basically thinks, you know, we should do big in that respect. That's good to the world. That's good to China, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at the installation and export of this uh, solar panels, of EVs, of the batteries, uh, I think also wind turbines. China is basically the largest uh, around the world. You know, one third of this uh, renewable technology or uh, patents comes from China. Mm-hmm. You know, when people say, yeah, uh, China probably in the past copied, uh, you know, uh, uh, or, you know, technologies from the U.S., from other developed world. But also, I would say China is investing in that respect to be more uh, innovative and to be uh, more productive. Let me also respond a little bit to this uh, <laughs> about, you know, uh, Trump's uh, trade war with China. And John mentioned that. I agree with John, you know, because of the domestic concern, you know, Rust Belt, the U.S. side. Uh, when I was in the United States as a correspondent, you know, Chinese ambassador basically told us, you know, to also write about stories about the U.S. difficulties. So the Chinese Chinese audience uh, would have a better understanding of the U.S. difficulty because the U.S. You know, do have a difficulty. The Chinese said should understand so we can come to, a, you know, middle point, a consensus, you know, like both sides should do something to help uh, resolve the issue. And the issue, unfortunately, probably remains even today. And uh, then the manufacturing, basically. And then, you know, uh, I would add to one point, that is globalization. Uh, Globalization, you know, uh, outsourcing uh, the multinational companies. Naturally, they would do outsourcing because that gives them more competitive edge with cheaper labor and even cheaper source, for example. Mm. Uh, so they found China to be a good destination. And now today, Vietnam too. How to say that's a natural development, uh, course of development of big business, unfortunately. If you look at mm. China, there's also concern nowadays. Companies migrating to Vietnam, Bangladesh, because labors are cheaper. You know, so that's naturally Chinese companies would move to Vietnam. Not only by the foreign companies, Chinese company would move to Vietnam, Bangladesh. What can you do? You cannot say, no, you cannot move. Hmm. You can only increase your competitive edge by providing, for example, oh, I have a robots probably. I have a, you know, a bad policy, for example. I can give you more incentive to stay and to hire my workers <laughs> and to contribute to the economy. I would say, unfortunately, for European countries, for the U.S., uh, the globalization, they don't have a corresponding policy, domestic policy, to mitigate this severe or the adverse uh, the impact of globalization. That mm-hmm. is the impact on their industrialization, on their workers. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't have such a policy, and then they see the suffering of their people. And then people tend to, you know, politicians tend to point fingers at others instead of themselves, instead mm-hmm. of looking at themselves. You know, there's a lack of such policy. And then you see a big issue over there. 2008, 
2007, the financial crisis. And then, you know, yes, even today, the U.S. is a bit of struggling about that. But, you know, what, what can we do? It's really, but we need to rethink about the issue, what we can do. The U.S. is working hard to draw all the companies back to the U.S. But, of course, if the U.S. provides bad policy, investors will go there. For example, the Chinese, uh, the biggest producer of, gla- of glasses in China, they have a uh, have a have a factory in the U.S. They say uh, the U.S. Uh, you know taxes are very low, very competitive, uh, much lower than the Chinese taxes. So they go to the U.S. So things like that. I mm. think you know every country, you know, in the competitive world, they will do what they can do to attract the investors, to attract yeah. the business, and yeah. and uh, you know simply blame uh, your competitor is not a solution, unfortunately. Gentlemen, I'm conscious of the time, and but uh, son, yeah, John, yes, please. Yeah, I'm, I'm mindful of the time too. Just a couple of maybe some concluding remarks. I think it's probably worth making. Um, there's a great line from Winston Churchill that said, "Democracy is the worst form of government, apart from all the others." Um, and democracy in Australia is messy, um, but I think democracy is it really. It is something, it's a beacon. It's a very attractive proposition for many, even in authoritarian states, many people really are attracted to the idea of having a say, of their voice counting. And I think, you know, China, maybe that's the next stage of development for China, that it can think about opening up a bit more. But the other thing I'd I'd, I'd make the point is that there is a, we all have to share this planet, you know, and, and the point about the environment and, and needing to be smarter about the way we do business and worried about, you know, climate change and, and pollution and the degradation, we actually have to make this work. And we really do need to change our perspectives a little bit. Australia, China, the United States, all of us need to change our perspectives and think about the challenges we face that we share. Hmm. That we and, and I think there is some effort that the COP26 is part of that. It's a pity that President Xi is not going to be there. President Putin is not going to be there as well. I think that's a real shame. I think it's about it's really important that all of us recognise that there are some higher order issues that hold that that we share, um, and that should be you know that's about self interest. It should drive a a rethink in Australia and China and elsewhere about our relationship, how we manage our relationships, how we manage priorities. And you touched on before about the United Nations. China is already a very dominant player in the United Nations. It's a permanent five member of the UN Security Council. It's got senior appointments in many of the UN-related bodies. The United States has a big stake in this. Um, uh, We all have a stake in this. We need to make it work. And if we look at it as a zero-sum game, then we will see conflict. We've got to stop seeing it zero sum. We've got to see it as something we all have to share in and and find a happy medium in. Um, and hopefully, the, you know, we can. I, I look back when I first started in uh, at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the ANU, talking and writing about the positive dimensions of the relationship between China and Australia and the opportunities for defence to defence talks and increased collaboration. Uh, it would be nice if we could get back to that. Uh, I, I don't think that that's too optimistic or too naive on my part to see as being possible, but there is some change that needs to happen. There's a degree of humility required by people who should be more self-confident, countries that should be more self-confident about their place in the world and the need to look above their own 
position and see the spectrum of challenges we face, governance challenges, environmental challenges, and great power contestation and sharing. So thank you, Chindu, and thank you, Maz. Chindu, your closing remarks, any final comments? Thank you, John. I largely agree with John. I think absolutely we should give up this zero-sum mentality or the perception of the world. Uh, Really, we need cooperation uh, to deal with our common challenge, for example, climate change. We know that climate change is a big threat to Australia, to China, to the US, to every country in the world. And also this pandemic, it's a pity to... Uh, not to see cooperation or more cooperation between China and the U.S. These biggest two countries, they should do more to work together to help save the world. Uh, unfortunately, because of politics, that's not the case. And also, you know, I would describe, you know, we do have democracies in the West, although democracies, you know, varies from country to country. In China, every country, obviously, there is a certain degree of democracy, certain degree of, uh, of authoritarian. Otherwise, you wouldn't run as a government. And that's a fact. In China, I would describe the Chinese system as a centralized system. If you look at Chinese history, as long as there's a strong central government, there's stability, there's prosperity. If the central government is weak, and then you would see warlords, you would see chaos. Unfortunately, mm-hmm. the Chinese are very sensitive to that. So system-wise, it probably will remain the same. But of course, China can afford it to be more open and to be uh, more closely uh, engaged with the rest of the world, in particular, uh, Western, rich Western countries. And I think we should come together to talk to each other more about, uh, you know, our concerns, our understanding, sometimes right, sometimes wrong, uh, sometimes not accurate. Uh, in that sense, you know, because nobody is seeking war, nobody is seeking conflicts, nobody is seeking disputes. I think we should uh, pay attention, pay less and less attention to military operations and more and more attention to cooperation in uh, research and development, in investment, in trade, in people-to-people communication, uh, in bringing our diplomats face-to-face to to talk to each other, like Mm. us. I would say a lot of a problem would be probably easier to to be resolved. Yeah. Gentlemen, I think that's a that's a wonderful note to end on, and I couldn't agree more. I think there's a lot more diplomacy that's required. Uh, and in fact, I was hoping to get to uh, uh, questions uh, to explore opportunities of mutual benefit between China and the West uh, at large, and climate change was certainly going to be one of those uh, topics. Uh, so I hope to invite you both uh, again in the future to uh, join me for another one of these, uh, because I think this is exactly as you both have highlighted this is what we need we need some more dialogue uh, some more perspective uh, taking off the other side so on that note gentlemen thank you very much uh, for giving me so much of your time today and i know we've gone well over our agreed <laughs> uh, originally agreed time so thank you very much thank you Maz. thank you thank you thank you john thanks for joining us for another episode of the voices of war You can access all episodes on www.thevoicesofwar.com or by subscribing wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And while you're there, please give us a review as we'd love to hear what you think. If you'd like to recommend a guest for the show, you can reach me on info at thevoicesofwar.com. 